Well, as we are all well aware, we are in the first Lord's Day of a new calendar year. And I cannot uh, think of a better way to begin the new year than with a brief study of some of the highlights of the book of beginnings, and that is Genesis. Specifically for the next uh, seven weeks or so on Sunday mornings, the Lord willing, I'd like for us to look at some highlights from the book of beginnings as we begin this new year from the perspective of the groundwork that the book of Genesis provides for some very important themes. God's groundwork in Genesis. First of all, obviously we need the groundwork for God himself and it's provided for us there. We also see a groundwork for the goodness of God in the book of Genesis. Even in the creation itself, we see the goodness of God. In the book of Genesis, and we've discussed these themes before, especially grace, we see the groundwork for grace in, in Genesis. And we also see the groundwork for growth in Genesis as we look at at some of the characters, especially Jacob. And I alluded to Jacob recently in another connection, but I want to look at that again in some perhaps more detail as we've studied the subject of growth and the fact that the New Testament Christian never stops growing. We see in Jacob in particular, I think, one of the great characters in Genesis, a beautiful example of, of growth from a supplanter as he was as he took away his brother's uh, blessing and birthright to a faithful follower of God with greater faith, greater confidence in God, and thus greater gratitude for what God had done for him. And we see the groundwork for gratitude in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning, there have been those in, in times past who have contended that there was no beginning, to this universe and specifically to the earth, but that indeed um, the steady state theory, the fact that uh, or the universe was uh, eternal, well, evidence is overwhelming to disprove that. Clearly, the universe gives evidence that it had a beginning, that it has not always existed. And the Bible is the only book that tells us who was in the beginning before the world was created. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was God. The eternal God. The God that is depicted in plural form in this book of beginnings. When God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. There we have Elohim, the the plural form of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all contemplated in that expression of God and the name of God who was in the beginning. But the book of beginnings also tells us that God created, that God created. And that in this book of beginnings, there is a groundwork for God. And that's what in this first lesson I want us to look at briefly, the groundwork for God that we see in the book of Genesis. Oh, obviously we see, 
we see the beauty of God's creation all around us, and yet the fact that the atheist will characterize what we see around us as beautiful, he will ignore by his own statement the argument that he himself makes for the existence of God. It's not one of the arguments we're going to look at today. But when the atheist talks about something natural being beautiful, he's really mentioning the aesthetic argument, his appreciation for beauty. Man appreciates beauty. And that's one of the arguments for the existence of God, the aesthetic argument, the aesthetics of this world, and the fact that we can, we can indeed appreciate the beauty as animals do not. I think I've mentioned this illustration uh, long ago when I was driving over in West Tennessee to a speaking appointment uh, in the late afternoon. It was an evening uh, appointment at a lectureship, I believe, and we were driving along some beautiful rural roads and out in the uh, pasture there were cattle that were grazing in the field in that pasture and then beyond the pasture you could see the sun as it was about to set and as you have often seen it was casting just such a beautiful beautiful glow and I, th I think Janice may have been with me I don't know I think she was and we were admiring that beautiful sunset and so were the cattle they had all stopped grazing and they were looking up and just appreciating fully no you know that they, they were still grazing they were still grazing while we were gazing they were grazing why because they don't have that appreciation for beauty and so even when the atheist who denies the existence of God talks about beauty in nature he's really affirming an argument for the existence of God but I've mentioned before that I like to look at three arguments for the existence of God that provide the groundwork for God in Genesis and remind us of the name of God. And I'd like to review those because I think it's been, I've mentioned them, but it's been a long time since I uh, discussed this in detail. Guilt, order, design. And we have God. We have God. The atheist tries to separate God from his created universe. But God's creation cries out in response with a resounding God is. And so think with me again about the, the three letters that comprise the name of our creator, God. And each letter reminds us of a powerful argument for God's existence. Let the, let the letter G remind you of guilt and let guilt remind you of what is called the moral argument for God's existence and the argument from morality is simply this man is a spiritual being with spiritual needs and with a conscience which urges him to do what he thinks is right there is nothing moral at all about matter nothing at all therefore Man's sense, innate sense, of right and wrong must have come from something other than matter. It must have come from intelligence. It must have come from the perfect moral being, God. Now, when man violates his conscience, from what source does the capacity to feel guilt originate? Materialist cannot tell us. 
Materialists cannot explain conscience. And back to the animals. The animals don't have it. If, if you're out and about and a, a dog who's uh, less than friendly comes up and bites you on the ankle, he does not run away and get under a car somewhere and, and experience great remorse for having bitten you, does he? Chances are you don't get rid of him or get out of the way, he'll bite you again. Animals don't have that capacity for remorse. They operate by instinct. God has placed that instinct within them, but they operate by instinct. Man is different. Remember, different. Remember, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1.26 beginning. After our likeness. God has no physical body. And so the moral image is obviously included in that statement in Genesis 1. 26 beginning. Now, there are a great many people in our world today who tell us that guilt is a bad thing. You shouldn't feel guilty about anything. Don't you be guilty about anything. Everything is fine, or at least in certain situations, everything is fine. Situation ethics is rampant, and political correctness has gone to seed in this country. But guilt comes from God. Guilt comes from God because morality comes from God. And violation of, of, of morality brings about guilt, and that's a good thing when we react properly to that guilt. I've mentioned before that those on Pentecost Day in Acts 2, when they were convicted of crucifying the very Christ, the Son of the living God, when they cried out, as verse 37 records it, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were not crying out with hearts filled to overflowing with love and gratitude at that point in time but hearts burdened down with guilt. They had become convicted of crucifying the Christ. They were convicted that they had done that and they were guilty. And it was guilt that prompted the cry primarily, what shall we do to be rid of this guilt? Where had that guilt originated? In the message that Peter preached that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. But their guilt was transformed into gladness upon hearing and obeying the good news, the gospel of Christ. Now, can man harden his heart upon hearing the good news when he hears it? Yes. All but some 3,000 souls on Pentecost Day. And there are many more than 3,000 there. They did not respond. Not then initially. Conscience can be seared. Conscience can become desensitized. Conscience can be mistrained. But the innate sense of morality that's common to man could never have originated with matter. Rocks are not religious. They are not moral. And so, if man will use the capacity to feel guilt for good, It'll be a great benefit to his eternal soul as he obeys the truth. But if he abuses this capacity, it will contribute to his eternal damnation. And tragically, that is what is happening 
with the majority of those living today who've lived and who shall live until time is no more. Why? Because Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so, guilt, the moral argument. But what about the O in the name of God? Order. Order. The fancy name, as you've heard before, is the cosmological argument for God's existence. Cosmos is the word for the universe, and it simply means order. Order. That's interesting, isn't it? That even the atheist will refer to the universe, which is a word, cosmos, that means order. But he will tell you that order, the order of this universe, came from some sort of big bang millions and millions of years ago and just ultimately became the beautifully orderly arrangement that we have today, quite by accident. How is that possible? It is not possible because this argument says that there must be a cause for the cosmos. The universe, the orderly arrangement that is evident all around us had to have had a cause. Specifically defined, the argument says, the cosmos is an effect produced by a primal cause which from the nature of the case must be a person. It has to be a personality. In Romans 1 and verse 20, here's Paul's argument. For since the creation of the world, listen to it, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's an inspired writer's argument. The things that are not visible to the naked eye are clearly seen by the things that are. In other words, this universe is an effect that requires an antecedent and adequate cause. And we stress adequate. As mentioned before, in illustrating this point, this pulpit did not result from an explosion in a woodworking shop. Not at all. Janice's brother made it. <laughs> and others worked on it, finished it, and Bill was involved. It's a beautiful piece of work. But it didn't result from an explosion in a woodworking shop. Well, then why should we conclude that the universe resulted from an explosion in space billions of years ago or millions upon millions of years ago? It makes no sense. Paul in Acts 14, 17 said, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The evidence that is all around us speaks volumes about the one who is among us, above us, everywhere the omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent creator God. Thomas Aquinas was said to be the first to formalize the argument we're talking about here in modern philosophy. And Aquinas said this, quote, that which does not exist 
begins to exist only through something already existing. Therefore, if at one time nothing was in existence, it would have been impossible for anything to have begun to exist. In other words, nothing does not come from nothing. And then he goes on, and thus even now nothing would be in existence, which is absurd. If you put that in just a syllogism, something cannot come from nothing, yet something exists, therefore something has always existed. Can the something that has always existed be matter? No. The answer is no, because the cause must have the qualities of that which is caused and more and more. And these are the qualities of being. These are the qualities of personality, not substance. In other words, I could bring a rock up here, and I've done that in the past. I could hold that in my hand, and I could say, here is a rock. God created rocks. Is God a rock? No, he's far greater than the rocks he created. He created the mind, which man still, still cannot fully comprehend or understand. He created personality. He created will or volition, and therefore he must have these qualities himself. The universe is an orderly arrangement that's the meaning of cosmos, as we said, order. Can such order exist without an adequate cause? No. Can a rational being come from an irrational thing? No. But a rational being exists. Not the atheist. He's not a rational being. Not the way he's thinking now, if he's atheistic. But he was created as a rational being. Therefore, a rational being has always existed. So, when you think of God, think of the letter O as order. And let it remind you of the cosmological argument which demands an adequate cause for this orderly universe. And now, let's look at a final argument for God's existence. The fancy name is the teleological argument, but it's more commonly known as the argument from design, the argument from design. And it really complements the previous argument and adds to the cosmological argument because it calls attention to the interrelation, the interrelation of the points of the universe, the cosmos, to produce something good. In other words, the cosmological argument demands a cause for the order of things now in existence. The teleological argument says the order of things was so designed with purpose, with purpose. We can see that in the design. The two arguments go hand in hand. It's said that William Paley set forth this argument back in the 18th century. Creation shows the glory of God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you have, who have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 8, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens 
declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night utters knowledge. There is no speech nor language in which their voice is not heard. The voice of creation transcends every human language, in other words. It speaks universally to those who will listen. God said to Job in Job 12, 7 through 9, But now ask the beast, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? When you see all of that design evident in the animal kingdom, when you see all of that, in the universe. So many could be cited that time would not allow for it in this immediate context. But let's just look at a few examples. The Earth's orbit around the sun. The Earth orbits around the sun and it departs from a straight line in that orbit by one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. Someone might say, well, so what? The Earth's orbit around the sun departs from a straight line only by what? One-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. Well, what if we varied that by one-tenth or by one-eighth of an inch every 18 miles? In other words, instead of one-ninth, let's just change it to one-tenth of an inch. Or let's go to one-eighth of an inch. That kind of variation would produce either a larger orbit or a smaller orbit. And the two results would be one freezing to death or the other burning up. If you altered that orbit just by one-tenth either way, move it out, we freeze. Move it in, we burn up. But according to the evolutionist, all that simply came into existence as a result of some explosion that just happened to work out that way. And what about the sun's distance from the Earth. The Sun is 93 million miles from the Earth, but if we increase that distance by 10%, move it out 10% farther, we'll freeze. Decrease it, move it in by 10%, we burn up. The Moon is 240,000 miles from Earth. If we decrease its distance from the Earth by one-fifth, just decrease it, bring it in by one-fifth, there will be tidal waves of between 35 and 50 feet in height twice a day over most of the earth. The seas, the tides are controlled by the sun's relationship to the earth. And what about the human body as a marvelous example of design? This morning I was watching Barry's program prior to our program the Fabric of Family, and he uh, features from time to time an excellent segment with Kyle Butt uh, and uh, for the family, uh, evidence, faith builders for the family, I believe the segment is called. And this morning, Kyle was talking about, talking about a little robot that I forget the man's name who, uh, who invented it, but he named it Zeno. And uh, Zeno was the robot, and they put a kind of a rubberized skin on the robot, and they 
developed this robot so that he could communicate and so forth. But the, the man who developed it also had a son, uh, a son, a toddler at that time named Zeno. That was his son's name, so he named the robot after his uh, son. And as much as people marveled about, uh, uh, about Zeno, the robot, they said the uh, Kyle was saying the little toddler Zeno would come into the uh, area where they had Zeno, where they were working, and he would just, you know, roam through there freely and so forth. And he asked the question, which is superior, the Zeno who was the robot or the Zeno who was the little toddler? And would you say that Zeno the robot was designed by anybody? Well, of course you would, or you'd be, you know, in serious trouble <laughs> mentally. <laughs> Obviously, you'd have some difficulty with your reasoning powers. But what about little Zeno, the toddler? <laughs> what do you say about him? No, no, that was, that was all just, that was all just chance. Why, well, obviously, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. You know, you think about the cells that comprise the, the makeup of the body. There are a hundred trillion in the body. A hundred trillion in the body. It's hard for us to imagine a uh, hundred trillion. You know, you, you've heard analogies about the, the national debt at, what, 17, 18 trillion. And some of the, uh, some of the comparisons are even hard to follow with that kind of, that kind of uh, figure. But think about a hundred trillion in the body. Some so small that it would take over 6,000 of them laid end to end to cover one inch of space. Each cell has 46 chromosomes. In each chromosome there is DNA which determines hereditary traits and these traits are locked into the DNA structure of every cell. And you think about the brain cells and how they work. What about the eye, the human eye? You remember Charles Darwin, what he said about the, the human eye? He said, quote, that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Well, why didn't he listen to himself? He further stated, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. The previous quote mentioned such an organ, the eye. That's enough to break down his theory because the eye is just such an organ. The eye has 107 million cells with 7 million cones allowing sight in full color and 100 million rods allowing sight in blacks, whites, and grays. The eyes are connected to the brain by over 300,000 nerves and could detect light as dim as 100 trillionth of a watt. How did the eye evolve? What intermediate state between no eye and the perfect eye could nature have, quote, selected to be passed on to successive generations. As the psalmist declared, Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Oh, David, only if every soul knew well the works of God. And only if men would start crediting the Father above with the works of creation rather than attributing them to mythical Mother Nature. So think of God and let the letter D remind you of the marvelous design that argues powerfully for God's existence. And so we've completed the three arguments and we have God. Guilt, the moral argument, order, the cosmological argument, and design, the teleological argument, all lead us to God and lead us to full agreement with the inspired writer who said the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. Tragically, there are a great many and seem to be a growing number in some places who do not know and who have not asked the beasts, as it were, have not looked around them objectively and openly and honestly to reach the obvious conclusion that God would have us reach, and that is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mentioned last year that in the beginning of this year I wanted us to look at some lessons that I believe are foundational and much needed in today's society that we can no longer take for granted that most people believe this book to be inspired of God, nor can we take for granted that most people believe God himself created the universe, let alone revealed himself through this word. And so the Lord willing, as we go forward in this new year for a little while, we will, as it were, lay again the groundwork for God in Genesis and the groundwork for God's Word in the hope that it will remind those of us who believe that God created the world and who believe that God has revealed His will to us in His Word will be reassured of that because the evidence is overwhelming and that we will in no way no way except the knowledge that is falsely so-called by those who claim to be, quote, scientific in their approach to the origins of all things. Not only do we find the name God in chapter 1 32 times, but we also have the phrase God said. We'll talk more about that, the Lord willing, in future lessons, but we talk about it now long enough to remind you that God has said what all of us must do in order to be pleasing to Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, Hebrews eleven six. How is it that we diligently seek him through his son, Jesus Christ. 
by a belief in Jesus that will lead us to repent of our sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism. For Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do so and become a Christian this morning. But if you need to come home to your first love and begin again as we begin a new year, the God of heaven who created you in his own image eagerly awaits your return. As we stand to sing, will you come? <laughs>